Well, at DTS, I got the privilege to take a Bible study methods class from Dr. Howard Hendricks before he passed away. And in this class, Dr. Hendricks walked up to the front of the room the first day of class, and he wrote Acts chapter 1, verse 8 up on the whiteboard for us. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And so as, as cocky first-year master's students at Dallas Theological Seminary, we thought, well, you know, clearly we're going to parse the Greek or something amazing like that. And he looks at, out at all of us and he says, I want you to come back the next class with 30 observations from this verse. 30 observations from Acts 1.8. Okay. So we come back the next class with 30 observations from Acts 1.8. Fair enough, simple enough. He steps to the front of the class in the next class and he looks out at us and he goes, you got 30 observations, great, I want you to come back for our next class with 30 more observations on Acts 1.8. So at this point, by the time we, we get to the 50s, we're, we're kind of starting to hit the bottom of the barrel. We're counting the letters and words. Okay, but has three letters, there's an observation. We come back to class the next time. We've got 60 observations on Acts 1.8 done and Dr. Hendricks steps to the front of the class with Acts 1.8 again on the board and sure enough, Great, you've got 60, come back next week with 30, 30 more. And so 90 observations. And, and what's amazing is that Dr. Hendricks has been doing this for decades upon decades upon decades upon decades. And he said that every year he's shocked and amazed because students will come up with new observations about this verse that he has never seen or heard before. Well, what was he trying to teach us with that exercise? He was trying to teach us that no matter how familiar a passage or a text or a narrative may seem to us, there's always more to be learned. There's always more to be found. There's always more to be observed. And you may be wondering, well, what in the world does that have to do with 1 Samuel chapter 26, which is our text this morning? Well, as we come to 1 Samuel chapter 26, we're coming to a very familiar story. In fact, if you were here with us a few weeks ago, we were in chapter 24, and the narrative parallels almost, it's, it's almost amazing how closely it parallels. In chapter 24 and in chapter 26, David comes across Saul in a vulnerable position. In chapter 24 and in chapter 26, David has an opportunity to kill Saul. In chapter 24 and in chapter 26, David refuses to harm Saul. And in chapter 24 and here in chapter 26, David pleads his integrity to Saul afterwards. And so as I approached this passage, I, as I approached this text, I found myself wondering, how do I preach this in a fresh way? But then I was reminded of Dr. Hendricks and his exhortation, 30 more observations. So after toying around with the idea of going to a, a psalm or going to 1 Peter or going somewhere else to, to talk about the idea of opposition, trials, and tribulations, I, I came back to 1 Samuel 26. And what we're going to find in 1 Samuel 26 this morning is this. We're going to find that the Lord has particular attitudes and mindsets that he wants us to embrace as we face opposition and trials in our lives. So in 1 Samuel 24, we looked at the, the idea that the Lord's will is never for us to seek personal revenge. We talked about that quite in depth. But in 1 Samuel 26, I want us to look at how does the Lord want us to respond to opposition? If we're not to seek personal revenge, how should we respond? What should our attitudes be when we face difficulty, when we face opposition? In other words, how do we suffer well? 
If you've ever wondered these things or asked these questions, I hope to provide some answers for you this morning as we look at 1 Samuel 26 together. As we get into the the chapter, it sounds like the same song, different verse, right off the bat, because you've got the, the pesky Ziphites showing up again on the scene, and they find out where David is. Again, David is not good at hide and seek. They find out where David is, and they say, we're going to go tell Saul again where David is. And so if you're wondering where is this all taking place, again, here's the map. You've got David down here where the black circle is. This is Mount Hekila, or Hekila, and that's where David and his men are hiding out. Well, you've got the Ziphites to the left there with the red underline, and they find out where David is, and they take off up to Gibeah where Saul has returned. Okay, that's Saul's headquarters. So the Ziphites dispatch messengers up to Gibeah, and they tell Saul, hey, Saul, guess what? We found David. David's hiding down in the wilderness at Mount Hakila. You need to come down here and you can take care of him. Well, Saul, dealing with a short-term memory problem after 1 Samuel 24, gathers his 3,000 troops again, and he sets out to go back after David again in Hakila. But it's interesting because something different happens this time. David doesn't run. David doesn't hide. David doesn't flee to the enemies of Israel to try to act like a crazy person and take refuge there. What does David do? David sends out spies to gather information. He wanted to know if indeed it was true. Yes, Saul is coming after him again. And he's coming after him with a large army again. David wanted to be prepared. This is just being a good leader. This is just being a good military commander. He wanted to assess the situation from afar in order to evaluate his options. Well, spies returned with the information he was looking for, reporting that, yes, indeed, Saul is coming, and he does have a a large army with him, 3,000 men with him. And they said, David, you can even come with us, and we'll show you for for yourself. And so David says, yeah, that's a great idea. David goes to take in the site for himself, and we find in verse 5, we read, Then David rose and came to the place where Saul had encamped. And David saw the place where Saul lay with Abner, the son of Ner, the commander of his army. Saul was lying within the encampment while the army was encamped around him. So if you can picture it, 3,000 men gathered all around, camped around in a circle, and at the center is Saul sleeping with his military commander, Abner, stationed right next to him. That's quite the, the picture, it's quite the image But what's David doing here? Well, David's exercising wisdom, isn't he? He's using discretion. This is David modeling for us that trusting the Lord in trials and tribulations isn't just closing our eyes and praying that it's going to go away by the time we open them. When we encounter opposition in life, it's important that we continue to remain level-headed. In fact, it's our first attitude this morning. It's When we face opposition, we need to wisely assess our circumstances. Wisely assess your circumstances. People have some strange ideas of what it looks like to trust God. There's a bit of an undercurrent in some circles that we can't bring anything to the table ourselves. This is the let go and let God mentality. Have y'all ever seen that on a bumper sticker or heard somebody say, you know what, you just need to let go and let God right now. Well, if David had truly let go and let God, David would be dead. Let me give you an illustration. January 15, 2009, the date may not immediately stick out to you, but there's a man who climbed into the cockpit of a plane, his last name, or he went by the nickname Sully. You guys remember this now? 
takes off and he's, he's flying through New York City. Something catastrophic goes wrong with the plane and all of a sudden he has his life, his co-pilot's life, the flight attendant's lives and all of the people on his plane. He has the, all of their lives in jeopardy in his lap up to him to make decisions. What happens if Sully lets go and lets God at that point? They all die as well as the casualties that would have taken place when the plane collided with a building or crashed into the ground or whatever. What does Sully do? Sully steps back. He assesses the situation. He figures out, I can't land at any airport nearby. The best landing course for me is going to be what? The Hudson River. And so Sully does just that. He takes the plane. He uses his wisdom and discretion as he evaluates his options. He sees this is the best option. It gives us the best chance of survival. And he lands the plane in the Hudson, and he saves all of those lives in the process. But again, if, if Sully had said, man, this is a tight spot, okay, God, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to let go and let you. Go for it. Jesus, take the throttle, whatever it is, yoke on a plane. Those people are dead, Right? See, yes, God is sovereign. He is the one in control. His will will be done, and no man can thwart that. However, none of that can or precludes God or prevents God from using the wisdom that he has given to his creatures. God has endowed you with wisdom and discretion, and you have the Holy Spirit living within you to even redeem those things from their fallen state. And so he wants to use those that he's given you in times of difficulty, in times of stress and trial and tribulation. Jesus confirms this for us in Matthew chapter 10. In verse 16, as he's getting ready to send the disciples out, he tells them, behold, I'm sending you out as sheep in the midst of wolves. Do you remember what he says next? He says, therefore, because you're going to face opposition, because I'm sending you out as sheep in the midst of wolves, therefore be wise as serpents and innocent as doves. See, we never want to use our wisdom for sin, hence the be innocent as doves. But we do want to be wise. We want to be cunning. We want to be shrewd. We want to use our wisdom and discretion that the Lord has given us to evaluate the situation and to learn and, and to assess, okay, what are the options that we have on the table right now? So David does this. Now, there's two extremes here. We can wisely assess our circumstances and, and make a, a decision based on wisdom, or we can look at our options and, and we can poke the bear, so to speak. We can incite further animosity. We can inflame our opposition, and we don't want to do that either. If you have a boss who's difficult, do as David did. Assess your situation. Evaluate your options and use wisdom in deciding how best to proceed. But don't poke the bear, right? If you have a spouse who can be difficult to live with at times, again, use wisdom to evaluate how to approach her, how to pursue her. David recognized that he was at a disadvantage, and he used his wisdom to, to figure out, okay, you know what I don't need to do? I don't need to turn around to my 600 men and say, hey, strap on your swords the way I did with Nabal. 600 versus 3,000, it's, it's probably not going to end well in that instance. And so David uses discretion. He avoids those two extremes of total passivity and complete stupidity. He didn't let go and let God, but he also didn't just try to take matters into his own hands and rely solely on his own strength. And this is important because there are people that have shipwrecked their entire lives 
for lack of wisdom during trials. David knew God had spared him before, knew that God had told him that he was going to be the next king, but he also knew not to foolishly and blindly rush into what would be certain death. He assessed his circumstances. Well, David does see, though, an opportunity to once again plead his integrity before Saul. And so David takes Abishai with him and ventured silently down into the sleeping camp. And now I had somebody come up to me last night and say, hey, did David know they weren't going to wake up? I don't know. I don't know. The text is is silent there. Maybe David took a, a few rocks and threw them down into the camp to see if anybody stirred. Who knows? Maybe it was evident. We do know at the end that God, at least on their return, caused a deep sleep to fall upon the entire army of of Saul. So it's possible David understood that, that he knew that, that he was able to to behold that, hey, these guys are just out. We're going to be safe. Whatever it is, he and Abishai make their way down to the camp. Verse 7, David and Abishai went into the army by night, and there lay Saul sleeping within the encampment with his spear stuck in the ground at his head, and Abner and the army lay around him. Again, a familiar scene for us. Saul at the mercy of David. Saul in a vulnerable position at the mercy of David. And here's David's men once again urging him, hey, let's take matters into our own hands. God's delivered him to you. Let's kill him. Verse 8, Abishai says to David, God has given your enemy into your hand this day. Now please let me pin him to the earth with one stroke of the spear. And I will not strike him twice. If you're wondering what this may have looked like, this is one rendition. This is from the, the Brick Testament, which is an actual thing. Different Lego recreations of, uh, of biblical scenes. But there's David and, and Abishai and there's Saul asleep. This one doesn't have Abner in it. This may be a little bit more uh, suitable, though. Here you've got Abishai and David reaching out to stop him from killing Saul. But Abishai's proposal, let's consider it for a moment. Maybe they were confident, okay, there's some sort of deep sleep taken over these guys. We're good here. Nobody's going to wake up. And so that's what gives Abishai the confidence to pick up the spear and kill Saul. But if not, I'm wondering what Abishai's plans were at this point. You kill a guy with a spear. Okay, you're not going to strike him twice. Fine. But there's going to be some sound involved in that. And Abner may be asleep right now, but I'm guessing he's going to wake up if he hears, you know, a, a, a spear attack taking place in the middle of the night. You're in the middle of the camp with 3,000 men surrounding you. What's your plan, Abishai? But David, David didn't ever go down into the camp with the thought of killing Saul. David came down into the camp to once again demonstrate his integrity before the Lord to Saul. See, David's not concerned that Abishai might miss or that Abner wake up. He's concerned for being obedient to God. Verse 9, David said to Abishai, Do not destroy him, for who can put out his hand against the Lord's anointed and be guiltless? Again, this is similar to the last, to chapter 24. And David said, As the Lord lives, again, he's trusting the Lord to take things into his hands. The Lord will strike him, or his day will come to die, or he will go down into battle and perish. The Lord forbid, God forbid, that I should put out my hand against the Lord's anointed. But now take the spear that is at his head in the jar of water and let us go. Again, when we looked at a similar situation in chapter 24, we focused in on that whole idea of not presuming God's will in these circumstances. But this morning I want us to focus on David's concern for his holiness before the Lord. He tells Abishai, don't kill him. Don't kill him, not because he's worried, hey, Abner might wake up and then we're sitting ducks, or the whole army might wake up. 
He says, don't kill him because that's going to be disobedient to the Lord. And I am not going to disobey God no matter what the benefit might be for me. The command, in case you're wondering where it is, it's Exodus chapter 22, verse 28. Exodus chapter 22, verse 28. There it says, do not blaspheme the Lord your God, nor curse or revile a ruler of your people. Do not blaspheme the Lord your God or curse or revile a ruler of your people. Picking up a spear and killing the king would have certainly fallen into that category of reviling a ruler of God's people. See, David, this is a lesson that we all need to embrace. David was more concerned about his holiness in the midst of the trial than he was for getting out of the trial itself. More concerned about his holiness than getting out of the trial itself. And this needs to be, again, our concern as well. It's our second attitude this morning as we suffer. And we need to zealously obey God at all costs. Zealously obey God at all costs. When we suffer, when we face trials, when we face times of opposition in our lives, it can be incredibly tempting to trade obedience and integrity for comfort and security. For David, in this instance, this meant having an opportunity to put an end to the running, to put an end to the caves, to put an end to the lack of food, to the lack of water, to the betrayals and to the disrespect. It meant having the potential to change everything. It meant having the potential for him to claim the throne. Maybe you've found yourself in a similar position to David. Having the, the opportunity where a simple compromise, a simple act of disobedience. I mean, we're not even talking about killing somebody here. We're talking about something minor in the eyes of the world. Might make all of your suffering and discomfort go away. It might mean financial gain for you. Or getting out of debt or it might mean getting a boss off your back. It might mean maybe closing a deal, a lucrative deal. Or maybe it's just going to mean less stress and anxiety at home. But can I encourage you tonight or this morning? It's, it's, it's not worth it. It's not worth it. No matter how much comfort and ease you may gain through disobedience, it's never going to be worth it. Romans 13, 14, Paul says, put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make what? No provision for the flesh. Make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. And so our flesh desires, what, what does our flesh desire? It desires comfort, it desires security, it desires ease, it desires wealth, it desires all of these things. And Paul's saying if to, to, to get there, if that involves compromise, if that involves sin, Paul says, make no provision. None. There's no exception clause there. It's never going to be God's will for us to sin to achieve less trial, less discomfort, less tribulation. In fact, Peter says trials and tribulation, suffering, it's the norm for us. 1 Peter chapter 4, verses 12 and 13. He says, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you 
as though something strange were happening to you, but rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings. Why? That you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. Peter says, don't be surprised when you suffer. Don't be surprised when you face opposition. And notice he says, as if something strange were happening to you. Let's invert that. What Peter's saying here is it's normal. It should be normal for Christians to suffer. It should be a regular part of our lives. The the valley should be a familiar friend to the believer who's following Christ. Peter says, but even there, rejoice. Why? Because we're sharing Christ's sufferings in order that we may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. Notice what Peter does there to our focus. It goes from here, from, from, from this plane to here. He's saying if, if you're looking for comfort, if you're looking for ease, if you're looking to be free from trials and suffering and tribulation, it's not here that you're looking for that. But you're looking to the day when the glory of Christ is revealed. When there's no more sin, sickness, disease, or any of its effects. That's when we will be free from trials and tribulation and opposition. In the meantime, we need to make the decision that David is making here and decide that our integrity before the Lord is of more importance than our comfort and security here on earth. In fact, guys, there's going to be times that God wants us in the furnace to test our faith. Because he's doing something there that's far more valuable than momentary comfort or ease could ever provide. James chapter 1, verses 2 through 4. You guys know it well. Count it all joy, my brothers. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness and let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. So if you say, I I, want to be that man. I want to be a man who, according to, to God's word, is perfect and complete and lacking in nothing. That's going to involve trials and tribulation and suffering and opposition. You're not going to get there without it. And so the question is, when the heat is turned up in your life, what happens to your walk with Christ? Can I come at this from a, another angle for a minute? It's, it's not directly here in 1 Samuel 26, but this principle lends itself this direction. There may not be times where you can compromise and achieve security and comfort and ease, but there may be times as you suffer that you're still tempered, tempted to compromise your integrity before the Lord in order to dull the pain, or in order to forget, in order to not have to face reality. Alcohol, pornography, gambling, even sitting there and binge-watching hours of television are all things that we can turn to in order to not have to deal with the pain, to not have to deal with the suffering, to not have to deal with the trial that we're walking through. Again, I'm going to charge you, encourage you, obey God at all costs. Don't compromise. David takes Saul's spear in his water jug, which were nearby the place that he was sleeping, 
as tokens to prove that he had been there and had yet another opportunity to take the king's life, but had refused. What follows is another bit of a comedic breath for us. Verse 13, David went over to the other side. Here's David again exercising wisdom. David goes over to the other side and stands far off on top of the hill with a great space between them. And David called to the army and to Abner, the son of Ner, saying, Will you not answer, Abner? And Abner answered, Who are you who calls to the king? And David said to Abner, Are you not a man? Who is like you in Israel? You're the king's bodyguard. Abner, there's not a man like you in all Israel. Why then have you not kept watch over your lord, the king? For one of the people came in to destroy the king, your lord. This thing you've done, it's not good. As the Lord lives, you deserve to die because you have not kept watch over your Lord, the Lord's anointed. Notice David's word choice here. Even as he was just speaking to Abishai, the Lord forbid that I should raise my hand against the Lord's anointed. Now he's calling out to Abner, whose job it was to protect the Lord's anointed. David, an enemy of the Lord, has more integrity in protecting the Lord's anointed than Abner, the the friend of, of the king. And now, he says, see where the king's spear is and the jar of water that was at his head. Talk about embarrassing. You know those memes, you had one job? Here's one. If you haven't caught up yet, the C and the H, uh, they're in different places. You had one job, okay? And and here's another one. And and we don't want any of these around school-free drug zones. What had happened was school-free drug zones. Abner had one job. What was Abner found doing? Abner was found sleeping. I don't know if you noticed it earlier, but there he is. He's in the background. He's nodding off. He's not doing his job. He's not protecting the king. And so David and Abishai, and, and here it is again by the Brick Testament. There they are. That's a large water jug that he's holding. But they're up there and they're calling out to Abner saying, hey, Abner, You had one job. You had one job, protect the king, and you didn't do it. And David's right, he deserved to die. Well, during this interchange, Saul recognizes David's voice and calls out to him. And David responds to this call, beginning in verse 17. David says, is it my Lord, the king, is it my voice? Sorry, it is my voice, O Lord, my king. And he said, why does my Lord pursue after his servant?" What have I done? What evil is on my hands? Now, therefore, let my Lord the King hear the words of his servant. If it is the Lord who has stirred you up against me, may he accept an offering. But if it is men, may they be cursed before the Lord, for they have driven me out this day that I should have no share in the heritage of the Lord, saying, go serve other gods. Now, therefore, let not my blood fall to the earth away from the presence of the Lord. For the King of Israel has come out to seek a single flea like one who hunts a partridge in the mountains. David's talking about some geography here. He's saying, you've driven me away from the heritage of the Lord. Well, remember, the headquarters is up there, that blue circle. That's Gibeah, okay? That's where the, the worship of the Lord is taking place. That's where the offerings are being offered, et cetera, et cetera. And David's way out here in the wilderness. So David's lamenting. David's mourning. David's saying, Not only, Saul, are you pursuing my life, 
but you've driven me away from fellowship with, with other believers, fellowship with my people, with my heritage, with the worship of God. But do you notice David's humility in speaking with Saul here? It's pretty astounding. He even admits, he even goes so far as to acknowledge that it might be the Lord who has stirred you up against me. So David, in in the midst of his trial and suffering and opposition, even at this point is willing to say, you know what, maybe this is God. Maybe I've done something that I'm unaware of. If so, may he accept an offering. May he be satisfied. May, May my guilt be atoned for. And he says, but if it be men, again, He's just, he asks Saul, please, just don't shed my blood out here so far away from my heritage and my people. Even the language he uses at the end of this to describe himself, the king of Israel has come out to seek a single flea. He says something similar in chapter 24 as well. David's demonstrating humility. Saul responds in verse 21, I have sinned. This sounds familiar, doesn't it? I've sinned. Return, my son David, for I will do no more harm to you because my life was precious in your eyes this day. Behold, I have acted foolishly and have made a great mistake. And David answered and said, thanks, but no thanks. He says, here's the spear, O king. Let one of the young men come over and take it. See, even there, his humility. David doesn't take the spear back to his camp with his men and his 600 men and celebrate and triumph and say, look what I've got, how humiliating for Saul and Abner. He even returns the king's spear to him. Verse 23, the Lord rewards every man for his righteousness and his faithfulness. For the Lord gave you into my hand today and I would not put out my hand against the Lord's anointed. Behold, as your life was precious this day in my sight, so may my life be precious in the sight of the Lord, and may he deliver me out of all tribulation. Yeah, this is a different David from chapter 25, isn't it? David's not hell-bent on his own offense here. He's not out for revenge. He's not out to justify himself. He's demonstrating humility. It's something that we all need to do in the face of trials as well. It's third, we need to humbly entrust the outcome to the Lord. Humbly entrust the outcome to the Lord. This may be one of the hardest of of all three points for, for a lot of us in the room. We can get behind wisely assessing our circumstances. We can get behind the idea that we need to zealously obey at all costs, but This whole idea of not being able to secure an outcome or to control the outcome or to set a time limit on our suffering or our trials. That's the goad that we're going to tend to kick against the most. Because again, this this point focuses on those things that we can't control. It zooms in on the fact that we have to humbly acknowledge that and to trust God with the outcome. See, David acknowledged this truth. He says, the Lord rewards every man for his righteousness and his faithfulness. Is that true? Yes, north-south would be good on that one. Yes, right? 
The Lord does reward every man for his faithfulness and his righteousness. That's true. Has David been faithful and righteous in this instance? Yes, he has. So then why, following that statement, the Lord rewards every man for his faithfulness and his righteousness? Why does then David make this request? As your life was precious this day in my sight, so may my life be precious in the sight of the Lord, and may he deliver me out of all tribulation. David doesn't say the Lord rewards faithfulness and righteousness, so Saul, I don't have to worry about you. I'm going to be delivered. It's secure. In fact, I'm going to be king. You're going to be killed in battle, and I'm going to take over. Why doesn't he say that? Because David's focus here is what Peter's focus was when we talked about it earlier. Yes, it's true. The Lord rewards faithfulness and righteousness. But the follow-up to that statement needs to be, when? In this lifetime? Maybe to a certain extent. There are blessings that will come from that, certainly. The book of Proverbs talks about that. However, the ultimate reward that we will receive for faithfulness and righteousness is guaranteed, but not in this lifetime. It's going to come when Christ returns. Or when he takes us home. That's when the ultimate reward for faithfulness and righteousness comes. And we understand that it's ultimately the reward that we receive for Christ's perfect faithfulness and righteousness that has been imputed to us. But even our obedience will result result in rewards, won't it? We'll be passed through the fire and there will be things that come out on the other side that are not burned up. That's when we will receive those rewards. That's when David would ultimately be rewarded for his faithfulness and his righteousness in this instance. But in the meantime, notice he entrusts the outcome of the present circumstances where? To the Lord. He says to Saul, as your life was precious in my sight, and now he diverts and makes a prayer, may the Lord consider my life precious this day as well and deliver me out of all tribulation. And so we have to humbly entrust our entire lives to the Lord and recognize, as I said earlier, there's going to be times that he wants us in the furnace, that we may pray for deliverance from a trial or for suffering, and that's good. Do that. It's not wrong to desire to be free from suffering. It's not wrong to desire to be healed from sickness. It's not wrong to desire to to not have a boss who's oppressive or who's, who's not ruling well. It's not wrong to desire to to say, man, you know what? It'd be great to have a better marriage or to have happy kids or to have a good family. Those things aren't wrong to desire, but we have to understand that we may never have those things on this side of eternity. And so our hope and comfort and rest and joy is not in those things because the flip side is, is true. And that is this, if you have the perfect job, if you are the boss You've got the perfect house. You've got the perfect car. You live in just the right zip code. Your political party is in office. Life is good. You've got a great marriage. You've got a happy family. You're Norman Rockwelling it around the dinner table together. Things are good. Your life is great. If you have all of those things, but you don't have Christ, you have your reward in full. And all of us know how fleeting those things are. And so for for us, as we sit here and as we face trials and tribulations, we have to acknowledge that God's ways are not our ways, nor are his thoughts our thoughts. 
And so we must use that wisdom to assess our situation. We must stay humbly obedient at all costs. And we must do as David does here and entrust the outcome to the Lord. Well, Saul and David part ways here. And in fact, this is the last interchange between the two. They won't meet again after this. And Saul says, hey, David, you know what? I'm sorry I did. I sinned. Why don't you come down to me? David says, again, thanks, but no thanks. You may have a short-term memory problem, Saul. I don't. I'm going to go ahead and hang out out here in the wilderness a little bit longer. But two times, David has an opportunity to end Saul's life, chapter 24 and chapter 26, and he doesn't take his revenge. This week, we looked at chapter 26 through the lens of how we ought to approach trials and tribulations and suffering in our own lives. God has not called us to passive resignation. He's not told us, let go and let me. He's given us wisdom to be employed in assessing our circumstances and evaluating our options. And he has called us to obedience at all costs. But he's also called us to to trust him with the outcome. And to acknowledge that we may not see an end to our suffering or our trials or our tribulations on this earth. Or we may see ends and beginnings of new ones. But we can know that the Lord does reward faithfulness and righteousness. And trust with Peter that if we share in Christ's suffering here, we will also rejoice and share in the glory when he returns. A familiar passage, right? But when we come back to it, and we can find 30 more observations, can't we? Let's pray together. Father, we're thankful for this text. We're thankful for this passage. We're thankful for your word. We're thankful that... For us as believers, there's a why to suffering. That we don't wander around as those who have no view of God, no understanding of what you do through trials and tribulation, but that we can point to the word of God, to passages like those in Peter, First Peter or those in, in the book of James, and we can say, God, you are doing something through this trial, and we can thank you and praise you for that that you are creating endurance and producing steadfastness within us. Or even as Paul says, this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory. So God, I pray that we would be those who suffer well. Lord, that we would be those who are obedient to you at all costs. those who use our wisdom and discretion and those who humbly entrust the outcome to you. God, give us the grace to do that. For your glory, we pray in Christ's name, amen.